Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. call to confession this morning is from Romans 8:12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. All human beings as God's creatures are debtors to him, to obey him with body, soul, and strength, to live according to his ways. Instead, mankind has lived as debtors to the flesh. The self has become master, and as a result, all have sinned. Man has broken God's commandments and therefore has become a debtor to his justice. The human race owes to God a vast amount, which is not able to pay. But of us who are in Christ, it can be said that we do not owe God's justice anything, because Christ has paid the debt his people owed. Therefore, God will never accuse us of a debt which has already been paid. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. And by that he meant whatever his people owed was wiped away From the book of remembrance, Christ to the uttermost has satisfied divine justice. The account is settled. The handwriting is nailed to the cross. The receipt is given. We are debtors to God's justice no longer. But here in Romans, the Apostle Paul says we are debtors. Indeed, not to the flesh. We are freed from the mastery of self. We are slaves no longer to our sinful flesh. Then to whom or to what are we debtors? We remain very much debtors to God, but not to his justice. We are debtors to his grace, to his sovereign love and mercy, to his eternal faithfulness. Consider, dear saints, what we owe our creator's selfless love in giving us his son to die in our place. Consider what we owe to his forgiving grace, that after 10,000 offenses, he loves us as infinitely as ever. Consider what we owe to his power. He has raised us from our death and sin. He preserves us in newness of life. And though we are harassed by enemies on all sides, he keeps us from falling and holds us in the way. Consider what we owe to his immutability. We are fickle. We change. From one moment to the next, our allegiance teeter-totters between self and God. Yet all the while, he does not change. He remains faithful to us. We are in debt, brothers and sisters, to every glorious and holy attribute of God. All to him is owed. All our lives, our love, our affection, and all of our allegiance. If you are willing and able, please kneel with me and confess our sins. Now, if you remember back to when I was here about a month ago, um, we were looking at how The Sermon on the Mount ended, and the last thing that was said of Jesus after the Sermon Sermon on the Mount in 729 is that Jesus had taught as one having authority and not as the scribes. So there was a difference between how Jesus taught and how the scribes and the Pharisees taught. Jesus taught with authority. They were always quoting from, you know, various sources and other rabbis and all of that. Jesus taught with authority, thus saith the Lord, really. What he, then the, that's the way he said uh, things in the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. 
And Jesus was teaching with authority throughout that and demonstrating that authority. And so the accounts following the Sermon on the Mount then are how Jesus is demonstrating his authority by acting now with authority. So he's backing up what he said with action in what he does. And so he acts now. And we see as he preaches and teaches that it is backed up by the ability to do all sorts of amazing things. And so we see as we go on in the count in chapter 8, we see that the first thing that he does is heal a leper. And that's really the passage that we looked at last time. And, uh, you know, healing a leper, this is someone that was untouchable. He was an untouchable. You don't touch or even go near a leper. He was unclean. And when a leper went through, you know, where people were, he had to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that everybody could move out of the way. And Jesus comes and touches this man and heals him. Right? A man that was as good as dead is touched by Jesus. Right? Not, Jesus is not affected by that, but, but that man is affected by Jesus. And so he heals this man, raises him up, showing that he had authority even over this dread disease, leprosy. And then Jesus continued on as you go on in chapter 8, and he healed a centurion servant simply by a word from Jesus at a distance. So he had just the ability to have, to be able to speak the word of healing, and at a distance he healed the centurion's paralytic servant. He had authority to speak and heal. And then Jesus comes to Peter's house after a synagogue service, and his mother-in-law, Peter's mother-in-law, is sick. And so Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then a host of others that that evening... Um, in Capernaum. And through that, he's showing that he is healing those diseases. He has authority over those diseases, but he, many people also bring to him demoniacs, people that are possessed by demons, and he casts out these, these demons, and as the word says there, he does it with just a word. He does it with a word. And he's fulfilling scripture, just like we just read um, in, in Matthew 5, he's fulfilling scripture. And one of those scriptures that he's fulfilling is Isaiah, where Isaiah had prophesied in chapter 53 that the suffering servant, who would not only heal men's infirmities and sicknesses, but who would also take care of the biggest problem mankind had, and that is sin. And Jesus is showing all of that by his authority and by his action. Such a magnificent display of power and authority that Jesus shows to the watching world, people get excited, right? They, be, they begin to see what Jesus is doing here, and they're excited. So much so that people begin to gather around Jesus. Even, even right here in the text, as you have these things happening after this evening, people begin to gather around Jesus, right? And so you see that there in uh, chapter, or verse 18 of uh, chapter 8, that Great multitudes gather around him and they press him in. Okay? He is so unlike other men. They're seeing this. He is unlike the leaders of the land. He's unlike the scribes and the Pharisees who don't teach and act with the same authority that Jesus did. And people flock to him to hear him and to be touched by him. They want to be near him, to be touched by him, to be healed of their diseases, the demon possession and all of those things. And as we see in John chapter 6, 
Some even wanted, like after the feeding of 5,000 in John 6, some even wanted to take him and forcibly make him to be king. All right? This is, he's, he, he's the perfect king. He speaks with authority. Right? He gives us bread. He heals our diseases. Let's raise him up and let's make him king. Right? And so here in chapter 8, verse 18, in Matthew, Jesus sees what is going on, and so he commands they go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum. His time's not ready to be set up as king, especially on man's agenda, especially when these men, you know, men and women want to raise him up. This is not the time. And so... They go start on their way down to the sea to get onto the boats to go to the other side. And on the way, that's where we have the text for today, the account for today. So let's read, go ahead and read that. Um, eight, chapter 8 of Matthew, verses 18 to 22. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. That is the word of the Lord. So, let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for bringing us together at this time, in this place, to hear this text. And Lord, we pray that we would delve into this and we would uh, see uh, what we are to learn here in this text. And Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding, that you would prick our hearts, that you would rebuke us and chasten us, correct us. Lord, that you would teach us and train us in righteousness. Oh Lord, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We pray this in Jesus' powerful and holy name. Amen. See, Jesus is confronted here by two people. One, a scribe, uh, which is interesting. A scribe who wants to be a disciple. He wants to become a disciple of Jesus and is a man eager to become a disciple. And the other one, already a disciple, you know, who's been following Jesus, he wants to put off following Jesus for a time. So you see one that's really eager and then another one that's already been following him but it's not so eager, okay? So what is the cost of discipleship that Jesus lays out here? You know, the first man that confronts Jesus, we see, this, you know, he's a scribe, and uh, we see in the first example here of the cost of being a disciple of Jesus, and this man's a scribe, and if you think about it, the scribes we see throughout the, the gospel accounts are the ones that are oftentimes, almost always, opposed to Jesus, Right? Because they don't like the fact that he's teaching with authority. They want him to be like them. Now, I, I don't know if any of you have studied the Civil War, but this happens so often in wars that when war is declared, many men run down to the recruiting offices to sign up. Right? So, everybody's eager, right? You're, you see what's going on. You want to get out on the front lines. You want to go fight this war. You're all ready. Okay? And so you go down and you... Set, go down to the recruiting office, you sign up, and in the case of the Civil War, um, many soldiers just flocked 
as, as things happened and were beginning to unfold, soldiers just, young men flocked to the recruiting office in order to sign up so that they could go teach the rebels, you know, a lesson. Or that they could go teach Billy Yank a lesson, right? And so they were signing up left and right. And what they had, what these young men were all excited about was the prospect of being a soldier. They could see themselves marching in uniform, looking all smart and tidy and neat, right? Marching in uniform, drilling, looking very good, marching in parades, getting medals and honor, being seen by the ladies in their uniforms and awing them. They had visions of what being a soldier would be like. They, they saw it being noble and glorious and res- getting respect and honor and getting to march with the guys and camp out with them and all of those things, right? They had visions of what a soldier would be like, but very few of them had any notion of the realities of war. Because that's not what war is all about, right? You don't go in your dress parade uniform into battle, right? And why is that? Well, because there's death and carnage and atrocities, and these didn't enter into their imaginations. They very rarely enter into the imaginations of the young guys that are signing up for war. And so they really hadn't counted a cost when they went to that recruiter's office. They hadn't seen the situation in truth and reality. Right? That's a bit like this first guy. Okay? That's like this first man here, the scribe, who came to Jesus and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Okay? You see, this scribe had been seeing the wonderful things that Jesus had done. He saw or heard of the healings that Jesus had done and the teaching that Jesus had conducted, that he taught with authority. And there was something different about Jesus. And in some way, he wanted to align himself with Jesus. The scribe probably thought, this is someone I want to align myself with because he's going places. Right? At best, he saw in Jesus a teacher who had authority and that he might be able to learn more from this rabbi Jesus. And that's why he calls him rabbi, teacher. And at worst, this man saw the miracles and the crowds that Jesus attracted and thought to himself, man, this man's going places. This man might even be the Messiah. And he saw in Jesus an opportunity to align himself with him so that he could advance himself. He saw that people were talking about Jesus as a potential king, saw him as potentially the Messiah, and the Messiah was surely to come, as the first century Jews believed, to come and set up his kingdom, a temporal kingdom here on earth, right now at this time and place, to once again get rid of the Romans and set up Jerusalem as the center of the world. Not Rome. The Messiah is going to come. I think this guy might be him. It's good for me to get in with this guy. I might be a part of this. And if I could get in now, he might, I might be one of those leaders that is able to sit in this king's kingdom. But, that's the worst scenario. I don't know exactly, but that's the kind of thing that people do, right? That's what we do. Jesus saw through this eager scribe's motives. This man was 
used to, see, Jesus understood the scribes and the Pharisees. He understood that this man was used to being in prominent positions of respect by the Jews. And that as a scribe, he had a life of ease and a life of quiet and peace with people looking up to him. That's what he was used to. All this honor, this respect that was afforded him by the people of Israel. And Jesus comes at him sort of like Ernest Shackleton's newspaper ad, right? You know, Ernest Shackleton was the explorer, right, from England, and he was going to go down and explore the South Pole, right? Remember his newspaper ad? Anybody remember his newspaper ad that he put in the newspaper? All right, here's what it said. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. You see what, (laughs) Ernest isn't saying, you know, hey, this is going to be great, this is going to be awesome, just come sign up with me and we can take off and go to the South Pole and we'll conquer the South Pole for England. Let's go! Right? That's not what Ernest, Ernest Shackleton wants these guys to know what they're getting into. Right? Doesn't sound like something I would like to sign up for. But it does sound like something my son Elisha might sign up for. <laughs> Here's what Jesus says. You know, this Ernest Shackleton says this. This is what Jesus says to this scribe that's eagerly wanting to follow him, to be a disciple of his. I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus turns to him and says, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is not an encouraging thing. He's not encouraging this guy, is he? Okay? He's pointing to the reality of following Jesus, of being a disciple of Jesus. Jesus was telling this scribe that he was like those young soldiers who signed up for the war. He said, you don't understand my mission. Mr. Scribe, you don't understand what you're asking. What you're telling me you're going to do. You're seeing the glory without seeing the sacrifice, the great sacrifice that comes before that. You're not seeing that I and my disciples will be like despised foxes. Okay, foxes are despised, right? Now, they're beautiful, but they're despised. Man, you don't want one in your chicken coop, right? And we've had them in our chicken coop before. Right? We don't want that, right? They're despised. They sneak around. They steal, right? That's how people think of me. That's what Jesus is saying. People think of me like that. Are you ready to be despised? A despised person? And this despised animal, this fox, you know, God even gives it a hole in the ground. God even gives this animal, this despised animal, a hole in the ground. I'm lower than this animal, this despised animal. I don't even have a place to lay my head. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to be a disciple like that? By extension, my disciples don't have anywhere to lay their heads either. You know, birds have nests, but I don't even have that. I don't even have a simple nest. 
Are you ready for that kind of life? Have you counted the cost of what it means to be a disciple of mine? You're very eager. Have you counted the cost of what it means to be a disciple of mine? I want you to know you'll lose your respect. You'll lose your respect in the eyes of the world. Are you ready for that? Have you counted the cost that my mission is about taking you up a cross? See, Jesus says later on in Matthew, in Matthew 16, he says to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Are you ready for that? Have you counted the cost, Mr. Scribe? Have you seen, says Jesus, that my disciples will suffer too, just like me? A servant is not greater than his master. Right? Jesus says in another place, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Are you counting the cost? Have you sat down and counted the cost of what it means to follow me? That's what wise men do when they build a barn, don't they? Right? Jesus says that in another place. Right? In another parable. And what Jesus does with this scribe is what Jesus always does. He goes to the root. Okay? He goes to the root. I mean, John the Baptist even said this. He said, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Jesus is going to the root. Right? Our root problem. A tree is only going to bear good fruit if the root is good. And Jesus goes to the root of this man's life. Do you have a good root that's rooted in fertile soil of God's word and of me? Or are you on stony ground? That's what Jesus always does. He, he does so even with like, you know, the rich young ruler, right? Rich young Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, keep the commandments, right? And he says, I've, I've kept all of these from my youth. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. Right? Jesus went right to his root, right where the sticking point was in being a true disciple of Jesus. And that's what he's doing with the scribe, too. He's going to the root of this guy. That's what Jesus always does. He takes us to the root, helps us to check out, check to see if our root is good, or if it needs pruning, or if it needs fertilizing, or if it needs tearing up. You know, sometimes you can help a tree, right, grow. If you go down there and start chopping some of that root and stuff, right? You shock that tree to get it to grow and stuff. That's what Jesus is doing here, okay? He's going right to the, this man's root where he needs help. He needs pruning. And so will this man, who has lived a life of ease and respect and honor, is he really willing to give that up to be despised and dishonored and to live a life of suffering and travel and to go into the storm, if you will, which is the next, next account here where Jesus goes into the storm, right? Are you ready to go into the storm with me? And his, uh, this all flows together. You know, and it's giving us a picture of what it's like to be a disciple of Jesus. He's talking to these two men here, and then it means going into the storm, and Jesus goes into the storm with his disciples. And they're fearful, right? Are you ready for that? 
So Jesus is attacking the root problem that we all have. Are we willing to suffer for him? To endure the storm with him? To take up our cross and follow him? To lose our life here so that we can find it there? To align ourselves with the Son of God? The Son of Man, as Jesus calls himself here in this text. The Man of Sorrows. Are we ready to align ourselves with him? When things get tough and hard times come and persecution comes, will we bail out and deny Jesus? Will this scribe be able to stand and handle the toughness it takes to be a disciple of Jesus? To have no place to lay his head, right? That's the question that's being asked of us, too, you know? This is things that we need to examine ourselves, right? And God's gracious. Christ is gracious, right? When we fall. Because Peter says the same thing, doesn't he? So that I'm going to follow you where I don't care if everybody else falls away. I will never fall away, Jesus. I'm going to follow you to the end. Jesus is going to the cross right then, right? And Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times. For this night is over. Oh, Jesus, come on. I'm Peter. I'm the rock. Right? But Jesus graciously restores him later on, doesn't he? Okay? We're not talking about perfection, but we're talking about a heart that's aimed in the right direction. And Jesus is saying, is your heart aimed in the right direction, Mr. Scribe? Is it? Just like with Shackleton, Jesus is really laying it out. Let him know who follows me, let him know the worst of it. Okay? Let him who follows me, let him know the worst of it. I'm going to be clear with you what it's like to be a disciple of mine. That's what Jesus is doing. Just like Ernest Shackleton, he doesn't want this to be a surprise when they get down to the South Pole. Okay? He wants men that are committed to that. No surprises. Count the cost of discipleship. Here's a man that's too eager. And the Puritans had a saying. The Puritans had a saying which said, soon ripe, soon rotten. Okay, soon ripe, soon rotten. You haven't counted the cost, right? You haven't grown. This man hadn't put in the hard work of faith yet. He saw quick rewards. He thought he could get on board with Jesus and reap the benefits of following him, being his disciple. But he wanted to do it on his own terms, in his own pride. See, there's a little subtle difference here in the text. This guy says, Jesus, I will follow you. Okay? The other guy, Jesus says, follow me. Okay? So this guy in his pride is coming, but without Jesus' call, this man would not stay the course as noble as he sounds. And so we want to ground people at the root level. And we want to be grounded at the root level ourselves and understand the cost of discipleship. It means following Christ over all other relationships, and that's what the next man finds out from Jesus. Okay? That's what the next man finds out from Jesus. The second man is an example of a man that isn't eager to follow Jesus. Okay? He's dragging his feet. But you see, he's already been following Jesus around. He's called a disciple here. 
Some early church fathers actually identify this man as Philip. Okay? The disciple Philip. Don't know if that's true, but that's tradition in the early church. Okay? Nonetheless, Jesus calls this man. Here's what Luke says in the parallel passage account. He says, to another, he said, follow me. You get that? To another, he said, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Okay, so that broadens out that passage a little bit. Fleshes it out a little bit more. Gives us bigger eyes to see. So there's hesitation in this man's response. Jesus calls him, commands him to follow him, and he hesitates. There's something in the way. Something a little more important than Jesus' call. Something a little more important than Jesus' command. But again, Jesus goes right to the root. He hits this man where his heart is divided. And that is with familial loyalty over Christ Jesus. Now, isn't this a thing? Right? Isn't this a thing? This is. Don't we so often see familial loyalty aligning itself above Christ? It's a temptation for us. Okay? It is a great temptation for us. Here's Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry says, Many are hindered from and in the way of serious godliness by an over-concern for their families and relations. These lawful things, families and relations, undo us all. And our duty to God is neglected and postponed under color of discharging our debts to the world. Here, therefore, we have need to double our guard. Isn't that a huge temptation for all of us? To esteem our family over Christ? To esteem and put our wives over Jesus? Now, I've been a pastor long enough that I see this. Most of the problems that I've dealt with have been right here. Okay? So this is a temptation that we all have. Okay? This is an area that we need to examine ourselves. When it comes to doing the right things, the biblical thing, the scripturally obedient thing, so often we put wife or children or husband above Christ and his word. The disciple says here, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And the way this reads, it is in, in the Greek, it is likely that his father isn't dead right now. He's, he's not saying, look, my dad just died. Can I just go bury him and then I'll be with you in a day or two? He's saying, my, my father's getting old. I want to care for him. I'm going to take care of him for a few years. And, and then I'll be ready to follow you, Lord. Okay? That's more of what he's saying. more like, wait for me until my father dies, and then I'll serve you. But that's not what Jesus, Jesus didn't say, you know, well just 
you come on your own time and your own terms. Jesus says to him, he commands him, he says, follow me. You think Jesus doesn't know about his father? Right? The one that can heal a paralytic from a distance and just say, be healed, and he is. Who can touch a leper? No, he goes to the root problem that this young man has. Delayed service. I can't serve you right now, Jesus, but I will later. I promise. It's kind of like Augustine saying, Lord, give me chastity. But not yet. (laughs) Right? Do we do that? We do, don't we? Right? I'll serve you, Lord, faithfully, but let me do this thing right over here first. Okay, that's what I really want to do right now. Instead of following you. Right? We do that. But Jesus Christ wants obedience and faithfulness now. Not on our own terms in some indeterminate future, but now. It's part of his authority. Jesus is saying, true disciples, follow me first. Follow me now when I call you. Don't let anything stand in the way. All right? And we all know Jesus' hard saying in Matthew 10, right? For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. That is a direct quote from Jesus. Right? And you think, whoa. It seems so tough. You really mean this, Jesus? Are you against families? No. It's not against families. The priority Jesus commands from his followers is who is first in your life? Who is first in your life? Again, Matthew Henry says, we must comparatively neglect and disesteem our nearest relations when they come in competition with Christ in either our doing for him or our suffering for him. Now, we also need to understand that we are to honor, right? God's own word says to honor our fathers and our mothers. And the man who neglects to take care of his family has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That's God's word too. And they reconcile with each other. They are in complete agreement with each other because God's word is not divided. Right? It's holy and true. So Jesus isn't saying neglect them, but he's pointing to this young man and he's saying, who has priority? Are you obeying me because I just told you to follow me? Do you really believe that I have authority? Because that's what I've been teaching. That's what I've been demonstrating as I've healed people, is that I have authority. Do you believe that I have authority? Then come follow me now. 
if we're neglecting the clear command of Christ in our lives for the sake of our family, we need to understand we have a problem. A problem that needs to be repented of. Christ and his agenda come first. Now, you've got to balance that out, too, because that's been the root cause of many evangelists and all of that to go and neglect their families. And they're disobeying scripture when they do that. Okay? So there's balance there, and you need the wisdom to... And that's why you have elders and, and pastors to help you think through those things before you go off and do something foolish. Okay? But what Christ is pointing to here to this young man is my agenda first. I've given you a command. Are you going to follow me now? Now, here's another example. <clears throat> Got a lot of examples this morning. But the things just kept coming to me. So William Borden was a young man in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and he was from Chicago, and his father was a wealthy silver miner from uh, Colorado. Colorado. <laughs> All right? And so he had made his fortune, had his business, and then he took up residence in Chicago where he could run his business and still and participate in the city life, the big city life, right? And so... William was heir, William Borden was heir to this tremendous fortune, and his mother had the misfortune, and I say that in all jokingness, okay, had the misfortune to become saved, <laughs> right? And she got saved through the ministry of Moody Church, what we now know as Moody Church, which used to be called Chicago Avenue Church, where Dwight Moody preached. And she got saved in 1894. And she took her son, William, with her. And William, likewise, got saved. And he eventually set his sights on becoming a missionary. He went to Yale University to prepare. And then to Princeton, which was the seminary, the leading seminary at the, of the day. And he began to prepare for the ministry as a missionary. Having a heart to reach out to the Muslims of northern China... But his father was absolutely opposed to this. His father was angry about this. He would not put up with his son doing this. You're being a fool. He spent seven years training to be a missionary. And then headed to Egypt for his final training about Islam. What Islam's all about. You need to understand Islam. Where better to go than people who knew it right there in Egypt, right? Which was a Muslim nation. And while he was there, doing his last bit of studying to understand Islam and the horrors of it, he got sick. And he ended up dying. Isn't that crazy? He spends years of his life preparing for the ministry, preparing to go to the Muslims, and he dies. And many people thought his whole life was just a waste. What a waste. You wasted your fortune by being written out of the will. You wasted and lost respect with your father. You died before you ever reached the mission field. You wasted your life, William. He served Christ. What Christ gave him to do at the time, that was his passion in life. 
was to serve Christ no matter what. And someone got his Bible and brought his Bible back to his mother. And in that Bible, she kept, she, she wanted to see the notes that her son had t- taken. She kept going through it. And as she went through the Bible, she found in it a date written shortly after he renounced his fortune in favor of missions with the words, no reserve. Right at the time. And he said, this is my declaration, no reserve. I don't need that fortune. I have Christ. That's what he's saying. And in another place, she found written, no retreat. And a date that placed it shortly after his father told him he would never work in his company again. And he wrote in his Bible, no retreat. And in another place, she found a date written just shortly before he died with the words, no regrets. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. I am following Christ. Nothing to me is greater than serving Christ no matter where he has me at the time. William Gordon put Christ first over all things, even reputation and respect, and even over familial relationships. Jesus came first. So Jesus doesn't say to this young man, neglect your father, dishonor your father, leave your father alone. What he does is he goes to the root issue in this disciple's life and he shows him where his priorities must be. And we as well must not neglect Christ's call. Now, what applications can be made? (laughs) Well, first of all, what's your response to all of this, right? You could have one of these two responses, right? You know, are you too eager without root? Right? Yes, I'll follow you, Jesus, and then, you know, a few days later, eh, eh, I tried them out. Right? There's a lot of people that have done that. Yeah, I tried that Jesus stuff. Right? There was no root. You expect, as a Christian, you have these, all these ideas of what it's going to be like to be a Christian, to be blessed with wealth and health and and respectability and honor and all of that, and you you don't realize that there's sacrifice or division or challenges. That's not the picture that Jesus gives. What happens when tough things occur in your life? Are you going to bail out from Jesus? Right? Or are you going to see by faith and not by sight? Are you going to trust him in his promise That he is working all things together for good to those who are called according to his purposes. Are you trusting him in those promises like that? Or are you like the second example, the man that had something or someone in the way of serving Jesus? Some concern that stands in your way of wholly and fully serving him. That might more likely be the case. I don't you know, I don't know. You see, too often we want to be like the scribe and say to Jesus with our pride and arrogance, Teacher, I will follow you. 
When in reality, Jesus is actually saying, just like he does to the disciple, follow me. Follow me. Right now. Follow me. He is the one that's directing the agenda of our lives, not us. We need to get in line with him. See, the problem is that we are all thinking so wrongly about this. Because we often, so, so often think, this kind of, I, I understand this temptation. I have this temptation in my own life. I think we pictured God as sort of being this austere being who wants to quash our creativity and our fun. Right? And so if we give everything to him, it's just going to be stuff that we don't want to do. <laughs> We'll never have any fun. We won't be able to enjoy things and, and all that. That's not the way it is. Okay? That's not the way it is. If God is who he shows us in the scriptures, then he has our benefit in mind. He has our best in mind. He wants to fill us and give us good things, the best things. He's the father that knows how to, how to give good gifts. He knows how to give good things to his children. And the best is to do things his way. And when we do it his way, we find out that's the most joyful thing. Even if we didn't want to do it, when we do it his way, we find out that was the best for us. It's what we should have. That gives us the most fulfillment, the most joy. I can't imagine being more joyful, right? Even if I didn't want to do it at first, it was just duty. You see, our desires and all of that change. Because we're following him. And he's got what's best in his mind. To do things his way. Not because he's a control freak. But because it's truly what's best for us. And leads us in humility and peace and joy. To become more like our creator. To become more like him. You see. He is growing us into maturity. He's growing us into maturity. And he's growing us to bear fruit. And true disciples bear fruit. They bear fruit in their family, in their church, in their community, because that's what God's prepared beforehand for them to walk in. As Christ Jesus gives his life for us and awakens his people through regenerating them, giving life to them through the Holy Spirit, people wake up, breathe, follow him, bear fruit. Bearing fruit looks like loving God and our neighbor. It looks like learning more and more of who the Lord is, spending time in his word, praying to him, seeking him to know him better through his revealed word, worshiping him corporately each week and being conformed to his word and becoming more like him. And that's not becoming more like him in this small, narrow sense. It's becoming like the creator of all things. It's not narrowing down. It's expanding out. It makes us more who we are created to be. Serving him like that. That in turn, working in conjunction with that, means that we love our neighbors. Right? We love him. We love God. We want to be like him. And be changed to be like him. And to grow in maturity. And then that works out into loving our neighbors and those around us. And we do all we can to reconcile with them, 
We let love cover a multitude of sins. We confront sins when they need to be confronted because we have the best in mind. We spend time together as a community. We serve one another as we can. And as we grow in this love, shaped by his word, disciples grow in holiness. And they grow to be more like Jesus. And we take on more and more the character of the God whom we serve. And that's what he's calling us to. And who is the God that we serve? He is, he is with Jesus who took up the cross. Right? For our sake. And his body was broken for our sake. And his blood was shed on our behalf. So that we might have life and have it abundantly. And he calls us to conform to that. To rest in him. That's the good news because... We're sinners. And every one of us knows it. But Jesus has overcome our sins. That's the good news of the gospel that we get to celebrate. So we confess our sins and we turn to him and we look to him. And we understand that all, all things are made right through him. That's what we see at this table right here. Right? And so we come with joy and with thanksgiving to such a great God as that. Why wouldn't we want to serve him in our fullness with all joy, with all thanksgiving? Right? Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this day that you've given to us to be able to come before you in worship. Lord, we thank you for the word that you have given to us that we may know you better. Oh Lord, reveal yourself to us. Reveal yourself to us in truth so that we may have eyes to see your glory and ears to hear of your glory and to hear your command lips to proclaim your praises hearts to desire to obey wills that desire to obey oh lord strengthen us in that and give us joy joy that is beyond compare oh lord we beseech you pray to you that you would be our strength and our shield. Lord, we now pray this. Isaiah 63, 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. If we look back through all our experiences and think of the ways that God has led us in the wilderness, how he has fed us in every way and clothed us every day, how he has bore with our bad attitudes, how he's put up with our own murmurings and all our strange longings, how he's opened the rock to supply us and to feed us for manna from heaven. If you think how his grace has been sufficient for all our troubles, how his blood has been a pardon to us for all our sins, how his rod and his staff have comforted us. When we look back on the love and watch with a watch of the Lord for us, it's then that it emboldens our faith that we will continue, that he will continue 
his love for us in the future as well. When we look back, we must also look forward. We look forward remembering that Christ's covenant and blood have something more in them than just the past. He who has loved you and pardoned you, he will never cease to love or pardon you. He is Alpha, he is Omega, he is first, and he is last. This table is one of the means that God places in the liturgy of our weeks to reassure us and to remind us that when we pass through the valley of the shadow of death, we, fear, we need not fear evil, for he is with us. And we fa- when we face the mysteries of eternity, we need not tremble. It's in the liturgy of the week when we are confronted by the scriptures, like this where Paul wrote in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when you, like Isaiah in this verse that we just read, recount the steadfast love of the Lord and consider the gifts of Christ that are represented at this table, I trust that you are comforted and assured of God's particular care for you and for your family and will long to love him more and more. Invited to this table are all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church, when we eat the, blood, or eat the bread and drink the wine together, we are acknowledging that we are sinners. We're without hope except for the sovereign mercy of God, and we're trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. Welcome. This is Christ's table. Come to it. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.